Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Good afternoon and welcome to today's broadcast of Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed. Today's date is February the 20th. It is 2015 and we do have a information packed program lined up for you today. And in case you didn't know, this broadcast is coming to you from behind these enemy lines called the United States of America. Of course, they say liberty and justice for all and we... This uh, country is a beacon of democracy and opportunity and, and all of those nice things, but it's far from the reality for millions of people in this country. And every day, well, just about every day, I am on these airways to remind you of that very fact, uh, not just issue my opinions and whatnot, but also to uh, share news stories with you that just underline the fact that, you know, this country is a piece of crap, and it really, really is, and it, ha- it has nothing to do with me loving America because America don't love me. That is what I'm show every day. So let me just tell you what we got planned for you today. Now, during the first hour here in just a bit, just about eight minutes or so, we'll be joined by Mr. Christopher Irvin, a regular contributor to the black talk radio network he has been on the program multiple times uh he comes to us from the baltimore maryland area where he works on uh, justice issues legal issues all of those issues police brutality everything that is connected to 21st century slavery and human trafficking and yes he is a member of our group move to abolish 21st century slavery and human trafficking on Facebook. Uh, he will be joining us again to give us another update on the issue of criminal records and the need for there to be a way for these people to clear their records after they have done their so-called time. Um, even if a person hasn't been convicted of a crime, uh, that arrest will still show up on a criminal record search. And people are... You know, looking at that and saying, oh, you was arrested for this, you was arrested for that, this and that. Oh, I don't see that you were convicted, but guess what? You were arrested, so it must, where there's smoke, there must be fire. And they use that to discriminate against people. So, um, it turns into a lifetime punishment. Uh, even if they, again, they haven't even been convicted of a crime. If it shows up on that criminal record, then guess what? It, you, they might as well have been convicted of a crime because it oftentimes has the same effect. Now, 
Uh, Mr. Irvin will be talking about there needs to be a greater, a wider, a national push to address this issue. Uh, we have talked about before in the past on this program and some of our other programs about the Redeem Act. I know some of y'all don't like Rand Paul. I don't really know him personally to form an opinion about if I like him or not. I do know that uh he gets down with the Tea Party and he is a Republican. But none of that matters to me when I look at the language, the words that make up this bill that he introduced called the Redeem Act. Um, Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, who was a Democrat, thought the legislation was so great and would right so many wrongs that he decided he wanted to co-sponsor it. And he even put a petition up on change.org for you to sign to show your support for it as well. Again, I have discussed the Redeem Act a number of times and I'm all for it. I'm all for it. You know, I'm for abolishment of slavery, period. But until such a time, um, yeah, we'll take any kind of small victory we can get, any kind of small battle we can win. Hey, wars are won by a lot of small battles being fought and won. So, yeah, we'll be talking to uh, Mr. Irvin here in just a bit. Now, during the second hour, we will be joined by Cleo Monago. He's been a guest on the program before. He is the founder of Black Men's Exchange that promotes healing, education, empowerment, healthy self-concept, critical thinking, and cultural affirmation. Uh, he has recently been a regular contributor to News One Now, which is hosted by Roland Martin on the TV One network. So you may have seen Mr. Monago on television here recently if you watch News One Now with Roland Martin. Now, he is um, coming on to discuss his concept of BTMI. Uh, that stands for Black Trauma-Based Mental Illness. And he says that it primarily is transmitted through media, through the American media uh, primarily. Um, now, he was also recently questioned, or he recently questioned the merit of National Black AIDS Awareness Day, which I didn't even know was on February the 7th this year. And so we will ask him to to further elaborate uh, on why he has a question for National Black AIDS Awareness Day and whatever other topics may come up. So we're looking forward to uh, speaking to Mr. Monago uh, about those issues. Um, in the news, if I have time to, to in between the interviews or any after the interviews, um, I will talk about some of the things that caught my eye in the news today, like the ex-Virginia first lady, that means she was married to the governor or the one, the ex-governor, uh, Maureen McDonald. She got sentenced to prison today, uh, for fraud and, and, uh, corruption. And I think she, I'm getting conflicting reports. I think she might have been found guilty by a jury on 11 counts, but I listened to a news report today because she was sentenced today and they said nine counts. But, Regardless of how many counts she was convicted of, at least nine counts, uh, this woman only got sentenced to one year in prison. How about that? And this is below from what I've been reading what the federal uh, sentencing guidelines say. So how about that? Yeah. Sending the people 
to prison for life for having a couple of rocks on them. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you want to send them to prison for life. But then when it comes to people like Miss McDonald, oh, you don't even go by the guidelines. But you tell us, oh, you got to go by the guidelines when you sentence in the people all for all this time. Now, um, we also discussed the former Chicago detective Richard Zuli, who used torture techniques that he developed on black people up there in Chicago. And, uh, yeah, he is a, a naval reservist and he was doing his, his, uh, applying his trade of torture to people down there at Guantanamo Bay. And I could not find where this man has been charged for any of his crimes, whether it's against black people here in the United States in Chicago or whether it was torturing, um, you know, different people down there at Guantanamo Bay. So how about that? Yeah. And then finally, a judicial ethics complaint against a racist federal judge by the name of Edith Jones. I've reported on her in the past. Um, that complaint was dismissed. They said it was a lack of evidence. You can't prove that this woman gave this racist speech where she said black people and Hispanic people were predisposed to committing crimes more than white people. And yeah, um, even though several people signed after Davis that she said that, unfortunately, they didn't get it on video. So the courts are saying, well, there's a lack of evidence. We don't believe you. Uh, you can swear all you want to swear. Uh, we don't believe you. And so we're dismissing this complaint against her. So, yeah, we will. Those are some of the news items that uh, caught my eye today. Now, I do believe we have our uh, planned guest for the first hour, Mr. Christopher Irvin, on the line. Do we have you, sir? Yeah, I'm here, Scotty. Uh, good to speak to you. You've been a very busy man, you know, uh, from communicating with you on Facebook. But you've been attending a lot of legislative hearings uh, there in your state. I believe the state capital is Annapolis, if I'm not mistaken. And, That's uh, right. Yeah. So um, before we get into, you know, the the uh, call for a national push for record expungements, can you tell us anything interesting? Go down at your state's capital that people in your state or people all around the nation might want to pay attention to. Well, I can tell you there's this thing called irony that I will be on your show today. and You ask me that question. We had a bill and and, uh, and it's one of those bills where that. I think the thing for me, as I've been saying you for a while, is expungement. Expungement would change the dynamic um, in our communities across the country. Now, there's also this uh, a bill that addresses collateral consequences, and what that what it does in the state of Maryland, anyway. Uh, this this same bill is already uh, in in law and will take effect January of 2016. I'm in Vermont. And what it does is outline the collateral consequence of conviction in that particular state. And so let's say in the state of Maryland, it bars uh, people who are licensed plumbers or who want to be from getting that license. A judge or the parole commission could then issue a certificate of restoration or initially a certificate of that would alleviate certain collateral consequences. So if a judge identified um, a license that a person wanted, uh, that license would not would not allow this person to be a harm to themselves or anybody else. The judge could then alleviate that collateral consequence, and then after five years of staying out of trouble, could issue what's called a certificate of restoration. Okay, here in Maryland, yeah. oh, go ahead. Yeah, let let me stop you there. Just you know, make sure that um, I have a 
clear understanding. The listeners have a clear understanding as it presently stands right now. If somebody is convicted of a felony, I presume that this doesn't apply to misdemeanors, but if they've been convicted of a felony that if they wanted to get, you know, trade licenses so that they could start a business or perhaps be employed by existing business where they need a license like you know perhaps electrician's license or or even a barber's license or you know there are a number of licenses for different trades and so right now as it stands in the state of maryland um um, if a person has a felony they might be prohibited from bettering themselves and gainfully employing getting employed because they can't get these licenses yeah absolutely right but but it does extend um in the cases of misdemeanors and even non-convictions sometimes non-convictions absolutely what happens sometimes is you have people who are charged with something and that charge in effect stays on their record whether they got a no prize or pbj which is probation before judgment or these different um these different forms of non-conviction. They can charges even thrown out. In some cases, the charges are staying on the record as being charged, and they're affecting the person's ability to get employment because you have employers who will use that to say, you know, oh, we're not going to, we're not going to hire you. We can't hire you. You know, some, whether it's based on their policy or based on their bias, the fact that they can see it can be used as issue to not hire a person. And so that's why this, this, this would allow people in the state of Maryland, expungements where every state is different as it relates to expungement. So in the state of Maryland, um, expungements are only available to a small group of misdemeanors. You cannot expunge all misdemeanors. You cannot expunge non-convictions, and you cannot expunge felonies in the state of Maryland currently. So what we're working on, which in, in full disclosure, to be completely honest with you, I don't like the certificate. I don't like it. You shouldn't have to carry papers. If you finished your, uh, if you finished the time that was given to you by a judge in the court, you shouldn't be able to be punished beyond that, beyond the expiration date of that thing. I think there's a very big constitutional question that needs to be addressed there. But the fact is, because the scope of expungement is so narrow in this state, the certificate would be a step in the right direction. It would help a lot of people. It would be a solid step. Is it as far as we need to go? No, but the first step starts tomorrow. Right, right. Now, um, what are some of the reasons? I, you know, I'm I'm just asking. You may know, you may not know. I know you talk to a lot of lawmakers and you know grassroots activists, so you might be knowledgeable on this. But what is the whole purpose of you know uh, um, having this stuff on people's records? I mean, okay, I, I understand if I robbed a bank or something like that, a bank may not want to hire me. And that's going to be on my record. But I mean, even when we're talking about where I was charged with a bank robbery, but the charges were dismissed because they had the wrong person. All right. And, and so, I mean, what is the, what is the rationale for not allowing people to even expunge those things? Well, right. Well, what I'm going to give you is my opinion. Okay. Not, not based in fact, because you can't find the fact substantiating in anything. Okay. Uh, the question I, I posed and what I posed to you, to you before is what is the legal basis for the continued punishment of any American citizen beyond the expiration date of the sentence given by a judge? And there is no basis for it. You can't find it. Now, so the collateral consequences statute was supposedly put in play in or about 1970. Funny that that comes on the heels of the Voting Rights Act of 65. Mm-hmm. So, 
on one hand, you have the, the right to vote given, and then the method to take that right away, um, you know, put in place right after that. So this whole, the whole notion of how we think, you have to think about when it was created and who, who pushed it and who it was initially pushed predominantly against. This whole, this whole situation of how we consider a record, we have to remember that that's the whole purpose of this current, of our system of crime and punishment in this country. If you commit a so-called transgression, you commit whatever is considered a crime, and you go before court and, and a jury of your peers uh, and are so-called convicted, of course, we know we're not arguing evidence. We're not talking about crooked cops and everything else. We're just saying what this system is supposed to be. Okay, if you end up in a court and you're, you're supposedly found guilty, you're giving a period of, of punishment according to the crime that was committed that the judge deemed appropriate. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So we often try to, you know, we always get that allowance. Well, if somebody did this, then I can see that. Well, whatever they did, however serious it was, that's what the judge sentenced them to. And so after that period, they should be able to move on with their life. I don't care what they did. And if right. someone says, well, what about murder? Well, if the murder was deemed to be of, of the type, and not a self-defense case, but a murder that was just egregious or whatever, you know, however you want to categorize it, if someone innocently was killed, then why is that person just allowed to be on the street? The, the courts are overcrowded because the system was so out of whack in trying to imprison brown and black people for nonviolent crime, then it just got overcrowded to the point, oversaturated to the point that they had to let people go that almost anybody would say should still be in jail. You see what I'm saying? It's a, it's a matter of it was so rushed to fulfill these dead numbers and everything else. Right. That they're letting out people who anybody in their right mind might be in danger. Right. Right, I understand that. If I mean, if they're going to be in wider society, well, certainly, you know, we aren't at any greater risk simply because they're in the workplace. I mean, they're out there walking the streets with us, going to church with us, shopping with us. Let me just just point out one last thing, because the statement I just made as far as um, who should be in jail for violent crimes, violent people should should be where they need to be. But But you also have to consider the circumstances that a lot of people exist in today. Not, this is not a caveat allowance for violent crime, but when you have people in desperate situations where they can't provide for themselves and their families, we have to think about the economics of, in particular, the black community, how they've been constructed and kept to be the way that they are, and some of the things that take place as a result of that. So while I'm not making caveat, I don't, I don't, you know, like I said, violent people need to be where they need to be, but then we also have to consider the conditions that put them in the environment that they were in. Right, that brought about, yeah. Exactly. Right. So this bill, again, let's go back to to this bill. In your estimation, good thing, bad thing, small well, step uh, in the again, right direction, what? It, I, I don't like the, the thought of someone having to carry papers. And in fact, I can give you an instance where it does not work. Um, the, the intent and the spirit of the bill is a good step in the right direction. Um, and, and that's about as best I can categorize because it's not good enough. But, again, it is a good step in the right direction. But in an instance where it didn't work in New York City, where I have a guy um, in, in New York, they have the certificate. And, again, it does help a lot of people. But in, the, in what happens is you have to, they, call, they still call it a rap sheet, it's an old school term. You have to get all of the paperwork associated with your um, offenses. So you have to get copies of your rap sheets, your fingerprints, and all of these things. Now, the way the process happens, 
is that you gather all of the paperwork, all of the documents, you turn them over to um, people, just like you're doing DMV or social services and things like that. Now, this guy that I have, he was hired by New York City Parks and Rec. He was promoted by New York City Parks and Rec. Ultimately, he was fired by New York City Parks and Rec. What happened is he had a um, CDS, a controlled dangerous substance charge. He had drug charge in New York City, but he also had a shoplifting, a much older shoplifting charge in Florida. Um, he served his time in New York, in New York State, for the charge in New York City. And when he turned in all of his paperwork to the individual taking the paperwork at the agency, um, he, he wanted to give her the paperwork for the, for the shoplifting charge from Florida much longer before anything else. And she said, oh, well, I won't need that because I have all of this stuff here. And I believe, you know, totally innocent in, in her actions. She was not intending to harm him or anything like that. This was an oversight on his part. But that oversight is what caused him the job. Now, ultimately, when he appealed it, um, his his supervisor came and, and stood up for him. You know, they stood up for him. They said, now, we understand why the, the New York City Parks and Rights Department said we're going to have to let this guy go. But we are here to attest to his work ethic, his character, um, everything good about him. The, the type of people that you want working for this department. But because of policy, they had to let him go. And so the, the intent here should be what is the spirit of the policy? If the spirit is to actually help people move forward, why adopt the policy that has the gaps in it that this one does, and why not adopt expungement? Which expungement, you just have, simply have to meet the metric up to nonviolent um, felonies. You have to meet the metrics. In other words, you have to stay out of trouble for X amount of time. You have to pay back restitution or anything like that. And then as long as you haven't had any other interaction with law enforcement other than minor stuff like a ticket, uh, traffic, you, you get your um, record expunged, you know, just by filling out the paperwork and waiting their uh, prescribed time. Now, if it's a violent charge, I believe there's um, there's uh, uh, provisions for where um, victims can be contacted and have have their say, and, and you know, they have victims advocacy things like that. And there's one-on-one um, interviews, almost like a parole hearing, there, where then if you meet the metrics and you know the, the higher metrics, you can get a, a uh, expungement. But up to nonviolent felonies, it should be a simple process where you just have to stay out of trouble, make page your bill, and then we expunge it. Because, again, the intent is not to punish someone's life. There's never been a legal basis for the continued punishment of, um, of an American citizen anywhere. You can't even hold somebody for no reason. Yeah, but we know from the history of this country, there has always been two set of books, two set of law right. books. Right. You know, there is what the law actually says, and then there is how it's applied to certain people. And, and yeah, so, I mean, one of the stories I'm going to get to later is about the former first lady of, uh, married to the former governor of Virginia, where sentencing guidelines said she should have went to prison for X amount of years for the number of charges she was convicted on. Uh, but yet, you know, this judge, um, sentenced her to just one year, way below. Mm-hmm. What the guidelines are, say, so that tells you. Are you me, referring to uh, Bob McDonald? Yes, I'm referring to his time? wife, who was sentenced today. Yeah. You might be amazed to know, and maybe he knew this was coming, that as a Republican governor in Virginia, he proposed the return of all rights and status to people after they uh, finished, you know, their prescribed sentence. He proposed an expungement bill. Uh, what was it? Maybe a year or two ago. Like I said, maybe he knew what was coming. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
Yeah. And so I imagine that Bill didn't go anywhere. Now he's out of office, a convicted felon and, and whatnot. So, yeah. But, um, man, that's just a very sad story that you just told me about this parks ranger, you know, getting promoted. Let me give you this, though, because on, on the heels of that, and mind you, he wasn't a, a ranger. He was just a parks. And in New York City, you have people that just go around in the parks. They collect the trash. They right, just, right. I okay. mean, you know, little Like a custodian. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue, um, what, I, what I wanted to expand on a little bit is the, the difference between collapse, the collateral consequences, um, the certificate of restoration. See, there are different levels of this. There's a certificate of restoration, there's expungement, there's part, there's clemency. At the lowest level, the certificate of restoration is a is a step towards expungement. And so it's essentially a state a stamp, say, you know, kind of a good guy stamp. You know what, this person's okay. They have a record, but we, we say they're okay. So if you don't hire them, you need to clarify other than their record why you're not hiring them. But but there's no mandate to do so. So someone could not hire you and just say, you know what, we just didn't, we just didn't think they were a good fit for it. There's really no teeth behind that. At the expungement level, um, they, they, they say that the, the certificate is transparency, expungement is magic because it makes your record go away. So effectively, you could literally say no if someone asks you, have you ever been um, convicted or something? And the, the whole point is, one, that question should never come up. Two, um, again, if if the crime is of a nature that you should still be under supervision, then that's up to, to the judge to determine. A lot of discussions are saying, you know, put the power back in the hands of the judge, and this furthers that, furthers that uh, discussion. Um, the last thing I wanted to point out, I kind of lost my train of thought, uh, to ask, um, oh, I forgot what you just asked something a minute ago. That, I had that, that uh, I talked about, you know, the sad story of this guy trying to get his life together you know, doing good on his job, got promoted, and, you know, because he had a prior record and they found out, or he turned it in, not that they found out, not like he was trying to hide anything, but then to cause him to lose his job. So Right, right. You also, you also mentioned two different sets of books. Or, or how yeah, two know, different sets you know, of books, one for right. us and one for the others. Right, and what I want to comment on with that is I completely agree with you. There are two different sets of rules. I, I'm literally just leaving the state capitals, listening to in on some other hearings that I wasn't a part of, just, just seeing people's responses and the type of questions that these legislators ask. And yes, they, they, what the system is made of, and, and what I'm getting at is a hearing that we had last night where I allowed some people to come and tell their story, testify in their spirit. A lot of times people get nervous. They say, well, you know, what are they going to ask us? I said, first and foremost, you are the expert on your story. Now, whether or not it will fit the narrative that's going on in testimony, no one should be able to make you nervous or budge you off of your story. You tell your story. The thing that I wanted to expand on with with your comment that there are two different books is there absolutely are two different books. And we keep trying to uh, subscribe to the book that someone else has written. And in their book, they have, they have, you know, written a script where we are the bad guy, we are the commodity, we are everything that we don't want to be. Now, we have a problem with that book, and rightfully so. But until we decide to learn how to write a book and then distribute the book, until we get more involved, 
we will always be the bad guy. But we will always be the commodity on the football field, etc. We have to learn. And what I'm saying is not to subscribe to the system, but learn how to play a part in affecting the system. I don't believe in the system because it, 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 it is meant to be against us in particular. But because I don't believe in it, I'm going to do everything that I can to do what I can tilt, you know, those scales. I know the scales will never be equal, but I'm going to keep pushing down on this side until the day I die. Period. Otherwise, we will always be complaining. And, and the main, the main example I like to shoot is if somebody bigger than you, if somebody, I don't care how big you are, somebody twice your size is hitting you in the mouth every day, at some point, you're going to do something. I'm going to do something. We have, we have to get mad enough to do something about our condition. And, again, that's not subscribing to it and all of a sudden becoming a part of it, but doing everything we can within it to change the dynamics. Otherwise, it's going to be our kids and then their kids and then their kids after that. Yes. Yes, I, I agree with you there. Um, again, you, I'm like you. I don't have any kind of faith in this system. This system was built on slavery, genocide, and land theft, um, and, mm-hmm. and it continues to this day. But, mm-hmm. you know, pending some kind of revolution, which would take critical mass, millions of people saying, hey, this is wrong and we want to do over. And so pending that, we do need to be doing whatever we can, whatever we can to make life better, you know, for millions of people. And, and so I, I agree with you there. I see where you're coming from. You know, like we say in the abolitionist movement, death by a thousand paper cuts. Okay. That's you, right. That's you, right. Yeah. You I were, could tell you last night I was in, in, and we had our first hearing last night on a certificate here in Maryland. And one of the, uh, legislates, one of the uh, senators, we were at a Senate hearing, um, the Maryland senator was asking, you know, and I mean, you had to see this guy. It was, it was, he was straight out of the Boss Hall handbook. What? Um, everybody in it, you're in the Senate, the State Senate Judiciary Committee. And, you know, of course, everybody has a suit on and all of this stuff. He doesn't. He has the, he has the, the I mean, ridiculously large bellies, rolled up sleeves with the suspenders on. I mean, you could have, you could, if I wanted to, if I wanted to uh, write a script for Dukes of Hazard, um, um, episode, I would have threw him. So you would have cast him, him as Boss Hogg? Exactly. That's Boss Hogg all day long. His question was, what happened to a record just being a record? You know, everything was, everything has to change now. People don't want to have to pay for their crimes. They don't want to take responsibility. And everybody to a person said, this is, this has nothing to do with responsibility. Everybody has said, if, if a judge gives them time, then they do their time. But once that time is done, you should not effectively have a license for every, every, um, um, sense, you know, every effective penalty in the book. They're supposed to be what the judge says they are. Now, if the judge gets life, that's a different matter. But a one-year sentence is currently effectively a life sentence because you are marginalized from, from the large society for the rest of your life unless you're able to get an expungement, a pardon, or some type of clemency. And this is all he kept saying is why is it a sentence just, why is it a record just a record? Whatever happened in those days? And unfortunately, my time was up because I, want, I would have responded, you mean just like back in the days when they were still hanging people? You want to go back to those days, you mean? Why isn't it still like that? I mean, that's, this is, the, re- this is the, the rhetoric that you hear. I just came from a hearing where um, I heard something that was also ridiculous. They, 
somebody is an approved secretary of public safety, um, an elect secretary of public safety. And so they go before a committee of senators, and each senator will talk about how they met the person, met the wife, and, and know the record, and, you know, they look forward to working with them. They, they hope they'll be approved. One senator uh, from Western Maryland, which has one of the largest prison complexes in the state, his response was, well, I heard you say that you're not a build more prisons kind of purpose, and I want you to know that I'm from um, Somerset County, Maryland, Western Maryland, where the home of ECI, Correctional Institution, Eastern Correct- Correctional Institution. Private prison which, in slavers? Uh, well, it's no, it's not a private prison. It's a state prison. Okay. But And that's a different discussion. But um, he said, and I want you to know, the ECI is the largest employer of the county. So when you talk about population reduction, uh, you you have to, by extension, talk about possible uh, prison closures. And I want you to know that that negatively impacts this municipality. And so I want you to consider that when you say these things and when you're you know, putting together your policies, because that would hurt county money, that hurts private interests, et cetera. Now, everyone in the room looks around like, really? But, you know, you're not shocked because you know that that mentality exists. But now how bad would it be if none of us were in the room? Right, right. I mean, <laughs> wow. And that's what we be saying on New Abolitionist Radio about, you know, these prison guards and this nation still being dependent upon a slave-based economy. Cause it, right. like he just laid it out. He knows it. I'm just, you know, perhaps people were surprised he said it out loud, you know, That's right. but yeah, we got this big old prison and lots of my constituents, they go into that prison and they get paychecks and they pay taxes mm-hmm. and all this and that. And if we stop practicing modern day slavery, then it'd be That's a whole right. lot of people out of work. That's basically what he said. That's right. That's basically so what I, he said. I, I, I'm just, Man. I'm going to continue to encourage us, especially, and like I said, you caught, right as I, I just left there, so I'm pissed off about all of the stuff that I heard today, yesterday, and everything else, and it's Friday. But we, we need, we need our abolitionist movements. We need our radio shows. We need our marchers. We need our so-called rabble rouse. People get angry. But we also need people to get involved in the, in the offices. Which I was, I'm gonna tell you for a long time, I was like, man, that ain't, that ain't, that's nothing, ain't, you know. But again, I'm seeing that we can't affect laws if we're not in the room where the laws are made and, and that door is unlocked and open. These are public hearings, these are public offices. We can have a problem with the system all day long and we can affect change from the outside, but we also affect some of the biggest change from the inside. One of the people who got me into this position is a state senator. Mm-hmm. She opened the door to me and said, I believe in this. She has stood up and spoke for it on the floor. She talked about how it impacts her community. She calls them out when they are acting like this is 1949 and everything else. She also has to play the game to an extent because she's a part of the system. I'm not a part of the system. I'm very close to it, but I'm not a part of it. So I can do it different ways. We, we have to become more like a chain where we link together and let each link uh, you know, work to its own strength. Yeah, do what do what it's designed to do. I do need to take a short station identification break, and I want to ask you a f- uh, few more questions, and I also want to get into why it's important uh, for this national push, and if you are referring specifically to the Redeem Act, which was uh, 
um, uh, introduced by uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and co-sponsored by Cory Booker. Uh, you're yes, listening. Sir. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed broadcasting on the Black Talk Radio Network. If you have a question or a comment bef- um, for Mr. Irvin before he leaves us, please do so by calling 530-881-1400. The access code is 549-032-POUND. It's star six and one. And um, I will allow you to come in to the conversation and ask your question or make your comment. We'll be right back on the other side of this break. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back to Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed, my guest today. Um, I'm speaking to Mr. Christopher Irvin. Um, Christopher, I want to ask you a question. How come, and maybe this has happened before and we just don't know about it. You know, we haven't come across the, um, court cases or the case law. Um, but has anybody ever, cause I mean, when I'm talking to you, you're saying that there's no, nothing in the constitution that supports, you know, the, the, um, um, lifetime punishment of people after they've done their time. And that is what these records are doing. There's nothing saying this or saying that. And, you know, they're passing these laws. And if these laws are unconstitutional, bro, has anybody ever tried to challenge these laws? Has it been that, uh, you know, I know the ACLU needs a plaintiff, um, before mm-hmm. they, they can, you know, give their resources towards, uh, fighting this in the court, the NAACP legal defense fund. But I'm just wondering, bro, how come I'm never hearing about these laws being, the constitutionality of these laws being challenged? I, well, okay. Let me begin with your question. Has anybody ever ch- um, challenged it? Not to my knowledge. And let me tell you that my knowledge on the issue is pretty broad. <laughs> Okay. So I have not I have not found anybody yet. I've asked some of the best in the business, um, constitutional attorneys and, and, and federal judges and law professors in the field who are who are tenured and who have you know in some cases set precedent. And and the closest I've got is when I mentioned that the uh, collateral consequences statute was passed in or about 1970. That is the closest I've gotten, and so I allow for the fact that one may have been passed into about 1970, but I have not been able to find anything, anything um, substantiated. Like I said, and, and just because something is put into law doesn't make it a good law. It doesn't make it a legal law. Uh, statutes are, are repealed. It is, it's not easy, but statutes have been repealed before. Something that was a law has been undone. So the, this, and Part of it is, you know, who wants to fight that fight? That is an expensive fight. That is a fight that starts at one level of courts, has to go up through courts of appeals, and, and it, you know, all of the levels above that. At some point, it may be an amicus filing, and these things are expensive. So who wants to get on that? You know, we don't have the types of lobbies. See, this is why we we have to learn minutia. I mean, you know, a lot of times we we talk to a group of people who, when you ask them something, they can tell you every detail of it. And we like to say, we don't need to know all that. We just like the basics. Mm-hmm. And then in a different discussion, when we talk about the law, you're talking about the letter of the law, the language of the law. In other words, how things are hidden in the minutia. We have to understand how, how many things have been hidden from us, have been used against us, 
are hidden in specific places that only certain people will go into. And then you're talking about lawyers and attorneys who, of course, come with fees and, and, you know, filings and fees and everything associated with that. So, again, who wants to fight our cause? Where, do, where does that money come from supporting that? Well, wait a minute. We, we, got, we got great organizations like the ACLU. We got the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and they're getting all that corporate money. Uh, ACLU, I mean, the Justice Department hands out grants every year, millions of dollars in grants and things of that nature. And, you know, I, I mean, I, for an example, I reported a story yesterday about these 14, no, excuse me, 28 workers who were mm-hmm. from India. They were brought over here illegally, promised green cards and whatnot to go work for this shipping, this uh, um, marine company. Well, what they do, mm-hmm. they do a lot of things, but they're based mm-hmm. in Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, they work on, you know, uh, boats and things of that nature. And so these people were basically kidnapped from India and brought here. And the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, took up their case. It took seven years, long years, but they finally got into a federal court and a jury awarded them $14 million. So uh, my rhetorical question on air yesterday, because I know Southern Poverty Law Center wasn't listening, um, but I will be emailing them. And uh, I want to ask them the question, well, you talking about this is human trafficking. This was exploiting these people of labor. Um, wait a minute. That's widespread here in the United States. When we look at these prisons, we're looking at slavery. We're looking at human trafficking. We're looking at the exploitation of their labor. And so where's the lawsuit? Um, Southern Poverty Law Center. Where, where, mm-hmm. wh- why aren't you fighting for Americans in America's courts on these issues? So that's, that's what I mean to say. I kind of feel like, and I'm not calling out any organization specifically, but I like to say that some of these people don't want to solve these problems because, you That's know. right. There you go. Yeah. There you go. That's a part of it, too. Yep. We're, we're, we're looking at, you have to, we're talking about, we're talking about systemic change that would impact this country significantly. Mm-hmm. Whether good or bad, that, that would be a significant impact. A lot of people don't like it because it would change status quo. A lot of people don't like it because. Not just because of the change that it will bring, because of the the unknown. Um, you know, who who's going to be able to live next door to me now? There's a lot of this. You, you mentioned the um, ACLU and and even the NAACP. I'll go that far. They were um, they were represented at the hearings that I were into was in today, and I know those specific people um, personally, and they work hard, but they are not equipped neither financially nor resource-wise, to tackle something like this. This is when you – this is why um, – uh, and, again, well, I, I've mentioned this to you before. This is why you've had the issues with gay rights or immigration. Though the status of those two demographics of people were the same for years until they realized how to correlate their, their, um, their funds and resources, how to become a lobby to lobby, lobby. for their own issues, and then move it forward. The strategies that it takes to do that, Besides just the resources, you know, you can have, you can have eleven big dudes. That don't mean you have a football team. Right. We got to learn how to put it together, and then you got to learn how to work together to move it forward. I most um, certainly agree that we do need to become um, 
lobbying. Because, I mean, that's how things get done. Lobbying groups. Absolutely. You know, whining Absolutely. and dining politicians and giving them gifts. And, you know, it might get you in trouble, though, like uh, the former governor of Virginia. You know what I'm saying? But we know how things mm-hmm. get, get done in this country. You know, paying for campaign ads and billboards, all that costs money. You know, well, let me let me let me. And this is this is part of my own education that I appreciate now. And I want to share okay. with your listeners lobbying. You know, we, we know what we see of lobbying from movies and TV. And if you watch, you know, House of Cards and, you know, everything at the at the uh, federal level, like you say, expense accounts and all that. But you know what? That's not that's not all. That's not everyday business at the state level. Okay. Lobbying is literally what I've been doing for the past three weeks where I have a bill in my hand that I support and I, and I have a sponsor for it, whether it's a, a senator or a delegate. I mean, in, the, in the state of Maryland, you have two sides of the uh, General Assembly, is the, is the Senate and the House of Delegates. And uh, on one side, you get a copy of the bill, and you literally walk it around. And you try and catch them. Um, if you're on the House side, you take what's called the, uh, 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 the, uh, the white back. No, you take the blue back. And all of that is is a copy of the bill with a blue paper on the back that has every delegate's name and they will initial it. In other words, saying they co-sponsored. This is the process now. And the so minutia. when you Exactly. And so I would literally walk from office to office. In the state of Maryland, you have 142 or 47, I forget. You have that many people that I'm literally walking to each one of their offices trying to catch that delegate who may be on the floor in a hearing or who may be at lunch or who may be out. And if they're not there, then I talk to their chief of staff and they say, well, do you have a copy of the bill? I leave them a copy so they can read over it. Most of the time they don't get to it to read over it. But then I try and catch them in the hallway and say, you're interested in sponsoring this bill. They may say, give me the brief version. What, what's it about? And if it's something in line with their constituents or their personal beliefs, they may co-sponsor it. In other words, put their initials on it, saying that they support it. It's mm-hmm. something that simple. Now, again, at the federal level, maybe even at the state level, yes, there are those big lobbyists who get paid you know, a lot of money and they work for uh, um, different lobbyist groups or, or law firms to, to lobby, but it also works at the very basic level of community interest, getting, getting someone to sponsor their bill, and then you coming up there doing the legwork. Mm-hmm. See, sometimes we don't know that, so we think we'll, we'll, we'll get it sponsored, and we'll, then we'll think that that person, that delegate or senator will walk it around, and sometimes they do to a degree, but again, they have hearings they have to be in. They don't have the time to walk around like that, and most of us don't because we work or whatever. It's a it's a tricky thing, that's what I'm but saying, we need Chris. to actually learn it and then put it in play. But that's what I'm saying, Chris. We we need to be able to pay people like yourself that this is all you do. You don't have to worry about going to, you know, push your time clock, 9 to 5 for wherever you work at, but this will be your full-time job. And so, well, you know, we in, we do need to develop these um lobbying groups ourselves like you know we've been saying about our group new uh move to abolish 21st century slavery we mm-hmm. want to be more than just a group of people a thousand or more people who's just sharing different horror stories and sharing That's information right. about this or about that but where we are actually getting on the telephone when they are denying uh, cancer treatment to a prisoner that has been brought to our attention. We're jumping right. on that phone. We're calling the prison officials and saying, Hey, is this correct? Is this legal? Should you be denying this man medical attention? And then on the same, on, on the same level of getting people to support the Redeem Act, getting our own right. 
uh, uh, representatives or the representatives over the districts that we live in and say, hey, get on that phone, show up at the office, whatever. Uh, tell them, look, I like this bill that Senator Rand Paul and Cory Booker is sponsoring, and I want you to get behind it. Oh, you don't know That's what right. it's about? Well, here's the summary. Uh, here's the bill number, and you know, I will get back to you in a couple of days, and you tell me if you're going to support it or give me a good damn reason on why you're not. You see, right, and, and, and all of that is absolutely correct. But the one step that um, both I and you have left out now What's is that? what makes what what encourages that representative to support this issue. Now, now let's say I have a, a, a delegate for the area that I'm the district that I live in, and they don't necessarily understand the issue. Why? How can I make them, um, or not make? How could I better influence them to support this issue? And that's mobilization. When they when they see you or when they speak to you. They will assume, and this goes for every elected official across this country, they look at you, and, and in speaking to one person, they equate that to X amount of voters. Mm. So the more people that can come to them or call them on an issue, in their mind, that is a number of voters echoing. So if, it, if it's one person representing a 1,000, that they will equate with a 1,000 people, they figure that you've talked to at least a 1,000 people, Imagine the numbers that they have to account for if all of a sudden 100 people or 150 people call their office about one specific bill in their state and say, I want you to support this. They're going to take a position on that bill. Right, right. Because come that next election cycle, if this group is effective enough in, in communicating to them that they need to sponsor that bill, they know that their assets can be voted out of office. Is that, where, is, is that where petitions come in? Now, petitions are a little different because that's when... Um, well, let me, let me explain yeah, well, it this well, way. Well, actually, let, you're right. You let, know, let, let me, me, back. Let, me right. let me explain it this way. So, like you said, you know, they're going to see one person and figure, okay, he feels this way. I'm going to use these multipliers and say he represents a certain percentage of voters in this particular district or this county. And so, before I go there with my bill in hand or the summary of the bill or whatnot, then I should be going to my community leaders, whether that's the pastors mm -hmm. of the church, whether that is people uh, who are running, you know, organizations in the community to help people, whether it is standing outside of my local grocery store and then trying to inform people and ask them to sign. And then mm -hmm. if I, let's just say, get a thousand signatures and people that say, hey, I'm behind this bill and they put their name there and they put their contact information. Then when I walk into that representative's office, I got, you know, a lot more backing me. I'm holding more sway or I got more street cred, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, the thing is, and I, I, I kind of, I kind of flip flopped on my answer because of this. A petition is a lot like a gun. Okay. When you show a petition, it's just like flashing a gun. Now, the thing is, it don't mean the gun is loaded. <laughs> right. So the thing about petitions is that sometimes they want to verify signatures. And we had we had a recent election here where um, petitions were gathered, and then they, they, they kind of threw some of the signatures out. Okay. It was saying, you know, so that that's, that's something that makes them flinch, but it doesn't make them do what you want to do. There's nothing like being, there's nothing like, okay, let's say, for instance, I, I've held forums here in the city where I just invite different advocates and activists and, and, and affected people in the community to come out and talk on this issue. 
but I also invite these elected officials. So at one, when they come and it's 50 people, they say, okay, there's people listening to this. And then when they come to the next one and see 150 people, they say, wait a minute. You know, and then all of a sudden they're talking like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on top of this issue. I come from this community. That's why I represent, you know, that's how I got elected. I come from this community. I understand this issue. So then, then you hold them to that. Mm-hmm. You say, okay, now you've seen all of the people, and we're telling you that we have religious organizations affiliated with it. This is the game. You know, we, we can have a long conversation about the actual game, but the influence of people being engaged. We are all mad about this system. But until you get mad enough to do something, you ain't changing nothing. Understood. Understood. We got about um, eight minutes left um, with you, Mr. Irvin. Will you tell people, because we've been promoting this heavily, will you tell people why they should get behind the bill known as the Redeem Act, which was introduced by Rand Paul and co-sponsored by Cory Booker? Yeah, man, This, these, the, the Redeem Act, uh, Indiana uh, recently passed the most um, progressive expungement law in the country. Currently, what we have is this dynamic, and again, specifically in black communities across this country, but but more and more increasingly is reaching further out and casting the wider net and affecting more and more people. Until people can actively move beyond their sentence, you know, once you successfully complete a sentence, you should be made whole. It doesn't only affect the individual as much as that's who we focus on as the person with the record. It also um, significantly impact the families and by extrapolation the communities. In, in our black communities, we also have um, discussions, big discussions right here in Baltimore on um, the, the educational system and how there needs to be more money in the system. But we never talk about where that money comes from. The money in these in all communities, but where, where we see it hurting the most, the money that, that is used for the educational system, that's used for transportation, roads, infrastructure in our community, comes from tax revenue. It's supposed to come from tax revenue. Right, and in tickets. other words, when, <laughs> when people can get, can get jobs and make money, and the more successful they can be, the more they will pay into their community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But then they're also extorting the money and, and just, high, well, I call it highway robbery, writing a lot of tickets you know, exactly. So. Exactly. In com- in communities where there's no other form of, of tax revenue, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So you find in places like Ferguson, Missouri, when you see that they have those kind of um, bait and switch schemes where everybody is is you know with these tickets and fines and fees and blah blah blah, what is the um, what is the economic output of that same community? Mm-hmm. It's not there, which is why they go to this other means of revenue collection. Mm. Wow. When we this this issue of expungement and, and specifically the Redeem Act that you're talking about, this is a linchpin issue for Black folks across the country, and like I said, increasingly more and more people as well. But it, it specifically Black folks, we're not even notice. We're just talking about money and the ability to move on. We're not even we're not even delving into the self-esteem of the individual, how somebody feels better when when. It's not again. It's not a matter of giving them a job, but just giving them the opportunity. When they feel like now it's up to me to to do better for me, that helps people with their own self esteem. Self esteem is what we see lacking in some of these same communities that we were talking about. This is this is again a linchpin issue. This is holding a lot of other issues together that we discussed. Sort of like 
when we talk about the 13th Amendment being the linchpin of modern-day slavery. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Except whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Mm-hmm. If slavery was so repugnant, uh, slavery at the time was socially accepted, they legally accepted it in the 13th Amendment. Because before that, it was, yeah, you know, this is what a lot of the world has done. We're going to end it, except if the person has been convicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with that exception, you have a punishment for life. Which even in the amendment, it doesn't say that it, you can be punished for life. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but they do. But Section 2 says that Congress shall have the power to pass the appropriate legislation to, uh, you know, Trap you in slavery and punish you for a lifetime. So yeah, I mean it's it's in the minutia. You know, I usually just paid attention to section one, but then I'm like section two is how they pass the black codes and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you you also find in there, um, and I don't know the section is in that perpetual punishment is constitutionally illegal. Mm -hmm. In effect, collateral consequences are perpetual punishment and and. Unending, pun- a restoring, a re- rejuvenating punishment, a renewing punishment, punishment that just continues and continues and continues, unabated, well, is constitutionally illegal. Well, I tell you what, though, we need to start raising some money and uh, funding some of our own uh, lawyers, attorneys, and whatnot to start challenging this stuff. Because, like you said, it is, you know, um, it- it can be very expensive, court filing mm-hmm. fees, travel, lodging, all of that, you know. And so, I mean, we can either, like you said, just complain about it or we can do something, you know, That's anything. Right. Death by a thousand paper cuts is, is what I, I say. I want to let nobody hit me in the mouth and be able to walk away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't saying I'm no killer, but if we, we ain't both just going to, somebody not going to walk away from me and just, you know, unscraped, unclean mind. Somebody bloody with us. Let's fight. Let's get in it. Well, Chris, don't Chris, talk me to death. Don't post on my page and link it. Let's get in it. And Scotty, I, I, I know you got to go, but I just want to say I'm hats salute, and I can't say that with any more emphasis than I do salute, brother. You've been doing this for a minute. I was I was watching your stuff, and even before I actually contacted you, I was like, these brothers are on it. You and um, Johanna and, and and brother Max Parker and many more. Um, Amidu, I just saw her today. People are in this, but just like you guys are doing it, we have to keep encouraging people. Everybody can't be down there every day, all day, but do something. We can do something. We find a way to do the things that we want to do. We need to start doing the things that we need to do. Most certainly need to do, must have, must do, Um, not only for ourselves, but for our seed, for our future generations. I appreciate you having me on today, brother. You have a good day, and I'm going to check out the rest of your show. All right, Mr. Irvin, and uh, we will stay in touch. Peace and blessings to you. Peace. All right, that was uh, Mr. Christopher Irvin bringing us um, powerful information, information that we can use. And, again, again, I know a lot of the people that are in my social circles that, you know, we waiting on the revolution, you know, but. That's not happening tomorrow. So in the meantime, uh, you know, we need to also be supporting those that that can work the system uh, as best they can to alleviate some pressure off of as many people as possible until, you know, the system can be eliminated, you know, because we know it needs to be eliminated. It's, it's based on racism, 
white supremacy, slavery, genocide, land theft, and, and all of this continues today. I mean, wow, for that guy, that legislator to say, hey, if we stop practicing slavery, then a lot of people in my county going to lose jobs and they're not going to be too happy about that. So there you go. Right there. Someone admitting that they depend on this slave system in order, you know, for lots of people to make money off of. It's real out here, people. It's real out here. And we just don't be engaging in inflammatory language and sensationalism and telling you that slavery was never abolished. The evidence is there. If you did, if you pay attention, if you listen to these people, you know, every once in a while, they will slip up and tell you exactly what's going on. And it's up to you, you know, to to understand it and then tell other people. All right, we should be joined here in just a bit. Um, I would say here in about 10 minutes, we'll be joined by Mr. Cleo Monago. I'm going to take a short station identification break. And then when I uh, get done with that, I'm going to slip in a news item uh, before uh, Mr. Monago calls in to join us. All right, stay tuned. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Right now, sentencing is underway for former Virginia First Lady Maureen McDonald. She was convicted on eight counts of corruption. Her husband, former Governor Bob McDonald, was sentenced last month to two years in prison. Suzanne Kennedy is in Richmond this morning. She has the latest on today's proceedings. Maureen McDonald is in the federal courthouse that you see behind me here in Richmond. Her estranged husband and her family are also by her side for this historic day. Maureen McDonald arrived just a few moments ago. She was found guilty on eight federal charges back in September. She did not testify during that five-week trial. Authorities say she played a pivotal role in selling the influence of the governor's office in exchange for more than $150,000 in gifts and loans. Prior to Mrs. McDonald's arrival, the former governor arrived here at the courthouse. And here's what he had to say on whether or not the judge would show any leniency to his wife during sentencing. That's up to the judge. He was uh, gracious to me, and hopefully that trend of mercy will continue. Here's what's on the table. Federal sentencing guidelines call for six and a half years. That is a maximum prison term. The prosecution, however, is asking for only 18 months. The defense says that she should only receive probation and have to do 4,000 hours of community service. Bob McDonald was sentenced to two years in prison. He remains out of jail on appeal. In Richmond, Suzanne Kennedy, News Channel 8. Wow, there you go, there you go. Sentencing guidelines now, remember, we often hear that whenever they have convicted someone of a nonviolent drug offense in this country, they had, you know, they had uh, maybe $50 worth of crack on them or something like that, and a judge uh, sentenced them to 25 years, 25 years for $50 worth of crack. 
And he says, you know, um, I, I, I wish I could be more lenient on you. And I know this is your first time ever being in trouble. You don't have any prior arrests. But the federal guidelines say I can't sentence you uh, no less than 25 years. I mean, we got people in prison right now. Well, I think uh, Clarence, I forget his last name. He was his sentence was recently commuted by President Obama, but he was he didn't even have the drugs. He was just uh, the go between. Uh, he some people asked him, hey, man, you know where I can buy some drugs? I'm looking for this amount. And he was like, well, I don't deal drugs, but I know some homeboys. I'll give them a call, see if they could hook you up. That's that was his role. He wasn't selling the drugs. He didn't even get a cut of the money that was going to be exchanged. And guess what? He got life in prison. So here we got this federal judge um, who appears to not have to adhere to the federal guidelines where this woman was supposed to give what? What did they say? Five years, at least five, six years. And she gets one year. And then the prosecution was only asking for what? 18 months. What's, yeah, what's that? 18 months? That's a year and a half. They were only asking for a year and a half. That's way below the federal guidelines. So again, this points to what I was talking about. Two sets of books, two sets of rules. Yeah, you know, they got one set of rules and, and sentencing guidelines for us. And then they got a whole nother set for them. So you want to tell me uh, racism, white supremacy did not play a role in this? I mean, come on. Where is the outrage? This judge, how dare he ignore federal guidelines? It's, I mean, let's look at his record. Has he been particularly lenient in his sentencing of, let's say, non-white people who have come before him? You know, has he ever contributed uh, financially to the campaign of this former governor and whatnot. Uh, I don't know. I mean, do they belong to the same country clubs and, you know, same golf club and, you know, they do around the golf on the same course and, you know, you know, the social circles and, and whatnot. But I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I thought, you know, it was written in stone that you had to go by these federal guidelines when you sentence people. And that's why we got people doing ridiculous amount of time in prison for nonviolent so-called drug crimes because of these guidelines. So, well, I mean, you know, 100 to 1, you got powder cocaine, you know, and you got crack cocaine. Well, it's 100 to 1 in the sentencing. Yeah. President Obama worked on getting it down to 18 to 1. That's still not fair. That's still not justice because nobody should be getting locked up over a substance. As long as they're not forcing anybody to take it and, you know, things of that nature. And they're not the ones bringing it into the country and all of that. But yeah, got it down to 18 to 1. Sentencing guidelines for crack cocaine. Not to mention, you know, the Obama administration, Eric Holder, after they got it down to 18 to 1, they then fought people to make them stay in jail, fought them through the course. Oh, yeah, well, we passed it to 18 to 1, but 
I'm sorry. Uh, we don't think it should apply to you. Although, you know, you were sentenced years ago. We don't want it to apply this to you. We don't want to let you out. Yeah, that's what they did. You know, but you didn't hear about that from too many people. But uh, yeah, but the sentencing guidelines, that's what we're talking about. Federal guidelines that say uh, if you commit this crime, if the, if these things were elements in that crime, then by the federal sentencing guidelines, I can't sentence you to no less than six years because you were engaged in perverting democracy, our most sacred form of government. Yeah, you just showed total disrespect for the office and you pimped it out to the highest bidder. So, yeah, we think we should throw sentence you to the maximum. Man, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be laughing, but that is the reality. That is a clear case of this person. This is a white person, so we can't, you know, uh, leave that out. But this all this person also, you know, wields considerable influence, even though she's a criminal. Considerable influence. I'm sure a lot of people got on the phone and called this judge and wrote letters on her behalf and, and may even showed up to court to testify like her husband, her estranged husband. But this judge, wow. You know, he doesn't even go by the sentencing guidelines, but you tell me, you know, all these people in prison right now deserve to be doing 25 years for victimless crimes and you let this woman and her husband get off with less than two years when they have perverted your most sacred of sacreds democracy selling it selling the office promoting it promoting businesses and products in exchange for over 165,000 in gifts and loans yeah you sent a real strong message there mm-mm-mm tell you all right so we should be joined here in just a bit by uh mr cleo monago he is the founder of black men's exchange and it promotes healing education empowerment healthy self-concept critical thinking we certainly need a lot more of that because they're not getting it from the public education system they're not teaching kids to critically think and so they grow up to be uncritically thinking adults of uh, cultural affirmation Got to celebrate that blackness. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll be joined by him here in um, just about a minute or so. So we're going to take a short break as uh, we try to connect with Mr. Monago. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. 
Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to fall, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. Now, let us begin with the modern period of, I guess we could start with 1956 for our generation. This was the beginning of the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King decided that in Montgomery, Alabama, black people had to pay the same prices on the buses as did white people, but we had to sit in the back. And we could only sit in the back if every available seat was taken by a white person. If a white person was standing, a black person could not sit. So Dr. King and his associates got together and said, this is inhuman. We will boycott your bus system. Now understand what a boycott is. A boycott is a passive act. It is the most passive political act that anyone can commit, a boycott. Because what the boycott was doing was simply saying, we will not ride your buses. No sort of antagonism. He was not even verbally violent. He was peaceful. Dr. King's policy was that nonviolence would achieve the gains for black people in the United States. His major assumption was that if you are nonviolent, if you suffer, your opponent will see your suffering and will be moved to change his heart. That's very good. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. Uh, we're going to uh, try to give Mr. Monaco a call, see if we can uh, reach him. We may be able to call out. We may not be able to. I don't know. Uh, nope, not able to call out that way. Uh, let me see if I can call him another way. So I do apologize. Uh, this kind of happened last week, and uh, we don't know what the issue was. Uh, so, yeah, I'll be right back. In a state of vanglorious, as we are protected by the red, the black, and the green, heed the words of the brothers. Well, this was a terrorist organization that didn't just defend themselves from specific acts, but initiated acts of terrorism. you favor that in this country? No, I think that the conditions that prevailed in Kenya uh, forced the Mau Mau to take action. And any action that they took, even though it seemed that they were initiating it, actually it was a defensive action. And it was a reaction to the colonial powers that were uh, exploiting them. 
Do you favor such an organization here? Uh, do, do, does white America favor the Ku Klux Klan or the Citizens Council? And as long as the government, uh, police bodies, do nothing about the existence of white terror groups that are terrorizing blacks, then it's time for a black to do whatever is necessary to put these white terror groups in their place. And I feel that a Mao Mao could wipe out the Klan in the north, south, east, and west, and wherever it exists. I'm not against the idea at all. The police, the same way. They put their club upside your head. And then turn around and accuse you of attacking them. Every case of police brutality against a Negro follows the same pattern. They attack you, bust you all upside your mouth, and then take you to court and charge you with assault. What kind of democracy is that? What kind of uh, freedom is that? What kind of social or political system is it when a black man has no voice in court, has no nothing on his side other than what the white man chooses to give him. My brothers and sisters, we have to put a stop to this. And it will never be stopped until we stop it ourselves. They attack the victim. And then the criminal who attacked the victim accuses the victim of attacking him. This is American justice. This is American democracy. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back. I do believe we may have our guest, Mr. Monago, on the line. Do we have you, sir? Yes, we do, mister. How you doing? I'm doing just great, uh, considering all things, as they say. <laughs> okay, I hear you. All right, let me just uh, shut this music down. Uh, we are joined uh, right now by Mr. Cleo Monago, the founder of Black Men's Exchange, as well as a number of community uh, organizations that help to promote healing in our community, education, empowerment, healthy self-concept, critical thinking. That's real important in cultural affirmation. I'm black. I'm proud. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Mr. Monago, how's it been going? How's it been going? Uh, let me see. Well, it's been going forward. Forward. To live a productive life that is definitely a con- contribution to progress for us as a people, and we're doing a lot of things all over the place, and things the momentum keeps growing. So, in the terms of people that I'm reaching, and and the letters and emails and responses I get from people who have been touched and transformed by the work, so that, that that's rewarding, and that helps keep me going in this often difficult process. Most what I mean by di- what I mean by difficult is that you know some of your people don't like this stuff. Say that again. I said what I mean by difficult is some of your people don't like themselves. Say they don't like themselves. So some of your people don't like themselves. Um, I would say some of our people, wouldn't you? Ain't you among us? I'm, I'm Asian today. <laughs> oh my god. 
<laughs> say you I'm Asian today? Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. I'm just kidding. I, I know you are. I know um, that um, you have become a regular contributor to News One now with uh, Roland Martin there. How, I'm certainly that's helping you reach a lot of people. And how how, how do you like it thus far? Well, it's been surreal in a very wonderful way. One of the one of the examples of the impact of that show. I don't know how often you watch it, but during the so-called Black Lives Matters campaign, I was concerned that some of those Black Lives Matters signs were being replaced with All Lives Matters, and that the Black Lives message was being drowned out by all this, these liberals and white people and other people coming into the fold. And um, I even had pictures and images that I had taken in places across the country, including parts of Ferguson, where the Black Lives Matter signs were being drowned out by other agendas. And I went to New York um, soon after being on the show, and I was mobbed by some young brothers and sisters in New York saying, now we saw we saw you, we heard what you, what you said, but we ain't having it. And then they rolled out a damn near two-block-long Black Lives Matter sign. So the show is reaching people and impacting people, and it's and it's a it's a very interesting experience to say the least. Uh, to answer your question, uh, no, I don't watch News One now, but I don't watch any kind of uh, television. Um, not that much. I watch some, but I will make a point when I see you post that you're going to be on there. I will make a point to record it so I can go back and, and watch you drop some wisdom on the people. All right, now cool. Yeah. Now I I wanted I invited you to come on because you made a post on Facebook that I thought was very enlightening um that people needed to understand and you've kind of already touched upon it a little bit by saying, you know, some of our people don't like us. They don't like themselves. And so um you have this concept called black trauma based mental illness BTMI and if I remember correctly um, from reading that post you made that is primarily transmitted through the American media, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I, I try to limit my intake uh, of, you know, white media. So, yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Can you elaborate on black trauma-based mental illness and how prevalent do you think it is in the community? Well, I have to preface my comments with that I agree with what you're saying regarding the toxicity of TV. And it's definitely something to avoid. And I don't watch TV hardly at all myself. Matter of fact, I've, I have not even seen many of the shows on TV One that I was on, not unless somebody records it and sends it to me. And even then, I'm not able to watch myself on TV because uh, I just don't, I'm just not into it. But anyway, um, but it is a good idea every now and then to check out what's happening in popular culture because what's happening in popular culture, for example, like the show Empire, that's out there. It impacts, deeply impacts the perspective, mindset, emotions, impulses, and behavior of black people. So in order to counter the toxic and, and, and destructive behavior, you have to understand the formula that led to the behavior. And media is one of the primary formulas, and then there's the so-called educational system that white supremacy is central to that teaches us supposedly what what high-level intelligence is and what academic prowess is. Mm-hmm. And then there's, then there's church, which, you know, your people are very, very religious. 
and that white Jesus thing, between the white Jesus and the um, media and the ex- educational system, not unless we are deliberately resistant to it and deliberately educational of young people particularly about that that system exists, we're sitting ducks. And a lot of people are sitting ducks. One of the, one of the consequences of being a sitting duck is to be an anti-black black person, a dismissive, abusive, um, hurtful person in regard to how, they, how people treat other black people. It's, that's epidemic in our community. That's why we often don't even know when we're being insulted. We don't even recognize the insult because it's such a redundant part of the experience. And to not like yourself is a mental illness. I have to agree with you wholeheartedly, 100%, no argument um, from me there. And, you know, a lot of it, there are many causes, um, especially when we talk about our historic existence in in this country. We're still dealing with a lot of that trauma. And, but... But, of course, you know, um, I, I got to bring it up. I'm sorry. I got to bring it up, Mr. Monago, because you said that sometimes we don't, we are being insulted and we don't even realize we're being insulted. And you talked about empire and, you know, you graciously actually shared a piece I wrote about, uh, not so much about empire, but about one of his producers, Lee Daniels, a black male, uh, filmmaker. Um, celebrated in Hollywood and he made some, uh, some comments about a test, um, episode or a test scene. I didn't realize that they tested these things on people first and before they put them on TV, but he ran a test that showed a white male who is in, in the television program in a sexual relationship with a black male who I think, I don't know for sure, is considerably younger than the white character on there. And so it, it did, for whatever reasons, the ratings dropped with this test audience when these two were shown kissing. And, of course, I laid out many different scenarios that that could have been the cause of without me having direct access to this test audience and asking them, you know, questions or polling them. But uh Lee Daniels got upset about, you know, the drop in ratings uh, from this test audience during this kissing scene. And I'm, you know, using um metaphors, but I interpreted what he said, what he said exactly was that black people are insulting and ignorance. And I said, did he just call us a bunch of homophobic niggers? You know, that's, that's how it came off to me. So, um, you shared that piece. What, what did you think about, you know, the scenario that, that, um, I shared with the people? Well, I imagine that you must realize that I agree with the piece. <laughs> That's why I shared it. I thought it was provocative. I thought it had dimension for thought, consideration in it. And I have been knowing of Lee Daniels and watching him operate for years. And uh, what you happen to say is how he feels about black people. And everything that he does makes that very clear. But as usual, I like to talk about context. And one of the reasons why people like Lee Daniels exist. Did you say white people like Lee Daniels? I said one of the reasons why people like Lee Daniels exist. Okay. Is among those reasons is the black community, in short, 
has, and I'm saying, I'm saying, I mean, by sure, I'm trying to abbreviate because it's so much. Right. But black people have been trying to assimilate, trying to not be hurt, trying to not be harmed, trying to become employable, trying to survive, trying to deal with basic things while being out of their minds because of slavery for for several centuries, and as a result of being white codependent and white terrorized. We have not had a conversation and reintroduced ourselves to ourselves. And as I said in one of the pieces that I wrote, that we, can, we, are, we are the psychological children of a white Victorian culture that was very, very sexually shamed, asexual, and repressed, but acting out, of course, because it's not natural to repress sexuality, but they had issues. But my point is that however they felt, we tend to master out of concern about about repercussions from them and doing and so a lot of us who live through their craziness um took on their their values. So instead of having values that were affirming of black people and that had us engaging each other, we were trying to outwhite each other and outwhite them so we could be protected and safe in their environment. The result of that has been no conversation about all kinds of human issues that we need to discuss so we could be repaired enough and clear enough to not create Trojan horses like Lee Daniels, who's mad at black people for not accepting him for his sexuality, who's mad at his father, who had issues with his son being a quote-unquote faggot and not being mad enough, who threw him in the trash when he was a child, and who acted out on him and abused him and traumatized him. And unfortunately, because we're racialized in this country, black people think when black people do bad stuff, it's a black thing mm -hmm. as opposed to a human cause and effect thing. I mean, I used to work with abused children, and only the black children on the wing in which I worked thought that their abuse was was based on something wrong with being black. An Asian child, a Latino child, or a white child could have gone through the same exact thing from their white, Asian, or Latino guardian, but they never, ever seen it as a racial thing. But we have an NAS, or black people ain't SHI, you know, that, the, the, the N-word, Mm -hmm. We have that mentality, and those people don't. There's no such thing as Asians ain't defecation. Latinos ain't defecations. White people ain't defecations. And when they, even when they get pissed off and angry, even if a serial killer that was white killed their children, they never, ever go to dehumanization of the whole race right. in, react, in reaction to that. But we do, and we do that crap in front of our children, so they think that when bad things happen at the hands of black people, that's a black thing. So that's what that's what uh, Lee Daniels said. He thinks that his abuse was a black thing. So black people are insulting and ignorant. Hmm. I think it was it was very important, and I believe I may have asked that question in the piece, or I might have just been commenting on air. But I said that you know I don't know what's in Mister Monago's heart. I don't know what he's been through. Um, you know, perhaps we can hear from those who know who grew up with him and, but there is something wrong here. There is something wrong. He did not just, just, you know, be, decide to become this way one day. At least I hope not that what we're seeing is a manifestation of, you know, his life, of his life. There is a reason why he likes putting out all these anti-black images through Hollywood, besides just being, you know, financially rewarded and given social accolades and awards and considered for awards and things of that nature. So I'm glad that you shared because I did not know that 
Mr. Uh, Daniels had suffered such uh, childhood abuse at the hands of his father. Yeah, see, you you don't you don't watch TV, and I don't watch Empire either. Matter of fact, only I I finally watched it after boycotting it from the very beginning was Roland Martin wanted me to come on the show and talk about a a particular scene or phenomena that was happening in the show, and I didn't want to go on the show stuttering, so I I I, I endured three episodes in one night on demand and watched and watched it. But um, that the, the there's a homosexual child of the family in the film who's thrown in the trash. And the oh. treatment that um, that homosexual character is getting is basically derivative of um, Lee Daniels' life. And, of course, the kid is light-skinned because Lee Daniels, like a whole lot of black people, wish he was light-skinned. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it is his life that he's putting on stage just to some extent. And, um, you know, stranger-loving people in the black community or feminine, so, so-called feminine men, some who are not even homosexual, sometimes deal with some difficult struggles in the black community because the black community is still looking for men and manhood. Hmm. Hmm. Black community still looking for men and manhood. I, I need, I want you to elaborate on that. I I don't think that's sinking in. Um, yeah. Could you elaborate on that after I come back from this short station identification break, Mr. Monago? Okay. Sure. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed. Our broadcast Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays right here on the Black Talk Radio Network at 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Um, if you want to know what other live programming is coming up, um, please subscribe to our website, our blog, blacktalkradionetwork.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Black Talk Radio Network, on Twitter, Black Talk Radio, where we always send out updates about upcoming programs. And also check out all the archives of our different uh, media partners. We'll be right back just on the other side. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All right, we are back. Um, our guest is Mr. Cleo Monago. Again, he's the founder of Black Men's Exchange. I have linked to their Facebook page. From there, you will be able to um, see the things that they are uh, promoting and also get links to their main website and uh, other contact information. Um, yeah, did, did you just insult us on the other side of that break, Cleo? Did, I, I mean, can you further explain? man on uh, the black community is still in search of men. Well, if you haven't noticed, and I'm, and I'm sure you have, uh, black males for some time now have been under major excruciating attack. Right. Including, including when it comes to the industrial prison complex, including when it comes to employability, including when it comes to being safe and sound within their own communities. Often when we say NAS, which means N-words ain't defecation, I don't want to cuss on your show, but you know what I'm saying. And everybody yeah, else I know what you're saying. No. Well, often that's, that, that's geared toward men. And there's a devaluing of men, including in our community, because of an unhad conversation that's coming out of black confusion because of what has occurred to black men. And that we a historical, and we give over generations, we don't give our children and each other historical context regarding the situation we're in, so we, as a result, think we're just crazy and messed up and N-words, 
because we don't know our history. We, I'm telling you right now, somebody who does educational classes all over the country all the time mm-hmm. and does historical attitude tests, we don't know. I mean, we don't know. Historical so, attitude tests? Historical attitude meaning that what is your attitude about black history and what is your knowledge base about black history? Okay. And, and, and African history, you know, with history that preceded colonialization by white folks in this country. Right. Our, our children do not know. Well, there should I, be I, no I, surprise, Mr. Monago. Well, Look no, at who's... well, there's no surprise at all. I'm giving you some context. Oh, oh right, book. right, right. Yeah. I, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just trying to point out to the listeners, they shouldn't be surprised, you know, because uh, what did Malcolm X say? We're coming up, you know, on the anniversary of his assassination, and um, that's not something that should be celebrated, but people are taking note of that. And he said that only a fool would allow his enemy to educate his children, so. Please continue, sir. Absolutely. So you talk about insult. What you just said, and I agree with it, is that we're a bunch of fools, man, because that's who's educating us for the most part. And we value PhDs and degrees and blah, blah, blah. And all that stuff is a mastery of the regurgitation of white supremacy in most cases, which mm-hmm. is also which also creates a negative impact on the black psyche and, and in the patriarchal culture, which is, is overall, on the black male psyche. So there's a lot of attacks on black men, and there's a lot of concern about the state of black men, given all that black men have gone through historically from Rodney King to Michael Brown. So there's a lot of black male insecurity, and there's a lot of black women who are looking at black men as, in some cases, are not necessarily reliably um, powerful because of all these attacks and slings and arrows that has not slowed down. I mean, I think you know that the murders of Michael Brown and Trayvon and Oscar and Jordan Davis, and we can go on and on and on, mm-hmm. this ain't nothing new. This is this is old stuff. Mm-hmm. This is old. When, when I went to Ferguson, one of the reasons why those young people were still active was they were like, look, y'all old folks ain't done nothing because we're still being killed, and we've been here about this. We, we heard about Emmett Till, and this is still going down. And that's one of the reasons why they were so active because they were like, ain't nobody coming to rescue us. So let's, let's, you know, let's, you know, we we don't want to hear from Jesse Jackson and Al Sharp. We don't want to hear from these old folks. Y'all, y'all failed. Because if y'all didn't fail, Michael Brown would still be alive along with Trey Martin. So anyway, all of what I'm saying is relevant to the context that's making black masculinity and manhood seem to be a precarious thing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Let me let me ask you this and towards healing because you do a lot of work in healing and empowerment and in uh after a person takes this test and you find or well, whoever's giving them the test your assistants and and counselors if you find that they you know lack serious knowledge on self what what do you what do you then do with that information well, let me attempt to alleviate the the formula. Okay. There's a lot. There's a lot to it. First of all, the model is called CTCA or critical thinking and cultural affirmation. Critical thinking and, and cultural affirmation. CTCA. Right. That's the name of the model that I developed that I, I use when we do the work. And for those of those who know that I'm saying you're loving, who are tripping, it has this has nothing to do with that. Not unless the audience is SGL. Otherwise. It's irrelevant, and that issue won't even come up. 
the sexuality issue because I know those people got all kinds of crazy ideas. I have to speak to that and take out the abstract because there's folks who just stuck on a mythology. But anyway, um, what the model does, it doesn't, it doesn't tell the audience what to think or give them information. It provides a context that helps them to realize what they don't know. For example, there are questions about um, history and about important figures historically that are relevant to, to, to the human experience and for them to make a list of it. And the, and the list is almost always filled with white folks and hardly any black people are on it. Mm. And, there's, and there's all these exercises that helps unpack and make it undeniable that the people in the audience which are always black don't know their history and only know about white folks and their frame of reference is white folks. And there's other exercises that occur that um, there's literally a um, component of the curriculum that's called the NAS component. And you know what NAS means at this point when I say that, right? Right, right. There's, we literally unpack that phenomena. And as a result of all this unpacking, these folks are like going to a state of shock and urgency about not only what they don't know, but there's also exercises in the course that helps them to take to, to honestly admit how they feel about black people and how and what come, and what are their impulses and what comes to mind emotionally and physically when they think about black people. And there's one exercise that I will articulate where we ask, if, if, even in all male groups, to name three men that are not famous, but that you know personally that you have great respect for. And I've done classes where that where that line was empty. Hmm. They didn't have enough. Hmm. And, if I, and if I would have, if, if I didn't take out the celebrity crap and all that kind of stuff, they would have had some. That's why I take it out. Right. So, so what happens is that, to make a long story short, is that this process unpacks all the stuff that they're living with that are anti-black norms that they didn't realize that they were living with. And as opposed to me getting up there just saying, or my staff getting up there saying, y'all don't like y'all stuff. We never say that. We make it. When we get finished with these exercises, they say it. It becomes self-evident. Because it becomes so clear it's not even funny. And that's the critical thinking piece. So you can't do the culture affirmation piece until the critical thinking piece is, uh, is unpacked. And people are admitting this conditioning of being conditioned to be anti-black and white supremacist. Because most of us are, 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 most of us are, I'm sure you've had conversations before where you're telling the truth about racism and somebody says, well, why do you hate white folks? You never said you hated nobody. Right, right. That's a, that's a white supremacy, white accommodationist, unconscious impulse. Mm -hmm. So we, so we, we unpack that too. And then once the, once the critical thinking juices are flowing and the truth is there about the white supremacy co-opting that we're trained to be involved in, then we start um, getting into the affirmation of black people through true facts that are affirming and powerful about, about black people that the majority of people didn't even know. Can you share Didn't, some of those with the audience? I'm apprehensive to do that because I've been apprehensive to get into the details of the formula. Well, not, which is why no, no, not get into the details of it or whatnot, but just, you know, a, one nugget, one nugget, something that might help somebody out there listening. One nugget of what? Of, of affirmation that you were just talking oh, about. You said. Okay. Well, okay. For example, black people basically invented almost everything. Um, black people 
are profoundly connected to the modernity of the United States, the technology of the United States, and almost every fine art and creation, not all, but many of them, come into existence because of black people. Now, this is the key here. If you talk to black people about black inventions and they have an NAS tape going on in their head unconsciously, and they devalue black people on an unconscious level, they're not going to hear you. Matter of fact, they might get mad at you because they think that black people are so effed up. We don't even want to hear this black stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you've heard, and you've heard people say that before. I know you have, but we don't want to hear this black stuff. I know I have. But yes, once I've, heard you un- it. I've heard it. Once you unpack the facts, or excuse me, even better, have it where they unpack the facts, where they have no choice but to face the context in which they live and not say I'm tripping, or my staff are children, but they can't, they're the ones who painted the picture here. We just gave them the paintbrush. They're the ones who painted and, and unfolded things. Once they are in that critical thinking state based on an analysis of where they live, but it cannot be denied, then they can hear positive things and actually synthesize them. Hmm. You, you can't help black people ain't listening to you. You can say all, all the pro-black stuff you want to, but if they have an anti-black narrative and they're subconscious, through a white Jesus, through an abusive black parent, like, which is likely what um, Lee Daniels went through. He's in an anti-black trance. He's dealing with the mental illness that I, that I described that wanted you, wanted us, wanted, that had you wanted me to talk. We are in that state. So when you're deep in that trance, the anti-black trance, ain't nobody to tell you that's going to stick to your ribs because you don't believe it. You, you think black people ain't nothing. I mean, NAS means that you that black people are, are worse than estrogen. We ain't even as good as estrogen. That's pretty bad. And no other group has that impulse. And I reiterate that because that's part of what we make clear at the appropriate time during the CTCA process that how are you going to say that you, because you're black too, you don't become white during those NAS moments. How are you going to say that you and black people ain't even as good as excrement. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless deconstruct where that perspective even came from. Because we're using the N-word left and right, and in most cases we have no idea where it came from because if we did, we wouldn't use it. We just wouldn't use it. Because mm-hmm. you're not going to have no Jews calling themselves kikes and the white people calling themselves honky crackers. You ain't affected words. They're not going to do it. They're not going to have Latinos calling themselves beaners and whipbacks. They're not going to do it as a norm as part of their culture. We unpack that and we teach the audience about, okay, why is that that way? And there's no rhetorical questions in the curriculum. All questions have to be answered. What the hell is going on here? Why would why would you do that? That's the critically thinking part, to make them right. critically think about, why do right. I feel this way? Why is it that only black people refer to themselves in derogatory terms and then try to say it doesn't really mean what it really means because right. we mean it in this way and they mean it in that way and yeah, yeah. Right. And before they got into before they got into this class and were entrenched into this formula, they had never ever ever evaluated it on a deep a deep literal logical level before. I mean bro, so you're making what, me think right now. I never well, asked that question. Why is it? I mean, you just enlightened me. You just made me critically think. I'm sitting here thinking now. He's right. 
Mexican people, when they come from Mexico or Hispanic people, they don't call themselves, you know, hey, wetback. What's how's it going today, wetback? Or you know, that's right. Jews greeting each other with, "What's up, my kite?" You know, that's right. And there's a reason for it. They also don't have no music and no, you know, rap music and no everyday groove and beat in their head, calling themselves kites all day long either. But there's another part to why we do that. See that even though this behavior has a black face. There are systems behind that programming that are intentional. And we break that down. But see, you gotta care for, you, you, this is the key part. You have to care about or be at least temporarily, if not permanently, triggered to give a damn about black people to even have the, to even engage the phenomena. And because of the behavioral mental health issue, the anti-black trauma transfer we in, a lot of us don't like black people. I mean, Empire, it's, I've only seen the first three shows. I haven't seen anything since that. But that show is straight up anti-black. And all the dark-skinned people are subservient in servitude. And I'm not exaggerating. And we we don't see it. Wow. And that that just further promotes the division in our community between the light skin and the dark skin. That's right. And, and That's right. Yeah, instead of us being united against our our who we know is the enemy. Yeah, I, you you've done better than well, me. I could only watch Cleo. I could only watch one episode cuz my daughter was watching it and when I came through there, she put it on pause. I say, "Why are you pausing it?" cuz I know how you are. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was like, I was like, no, go ahead, play it. I want to watch some of it. So then, you know, I can at least say, you know, I saw Summer Empire. I didn't sit down and watch a lot of it, but I saw Summer Empire. This is what I saw. And that was enough right there to let me know this is not something I want to watch on a regular basis. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it was hard, but I ain't going to go on national TV stuttering. I, I, I understand you had to do it. For yeah, homework, so for for research purposes, right? I understand right. it, <laughs> but it's, it's 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 a travesty. And um, interestingly enough, this is if you went to CPCA, this they would know this. First of all, there are no shows on. Well, I just again, I try to be brief. It's the their claim for keeping Empire on TV is that black people like it. Now that's already a lie. If, if, if they if they really care about what black people like, our city hall will still be on TV. True. So so they don't care about what black people like, but they sell us that they sell us that story. Also, Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox, is a known racist. Yes, he so is. So why so why would a known racist give a damn about black people liking something and cancel things that black people like historically? There's a contradiction there. Once you're in the critical thinking, culture affirmation context. All, most contradictions become clear as a veil. And so you don't fall for it no more and internalize the messaging and all this stuff that teaches us to be anti-black. The fact of the matter is Rupert Murdoch is hiring and paying a self-hating homosexual black man all kinds of money to be the symbolic excuse not to look racist to keep his crap on TV. And there's also the programming aspect. He wants to program black well, exactly. people with all this self-hating uh, media viruses and whatnot. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's part of my point. Exactly. That's why I mentioned Rupert Murdoch and mm-hmm. how they do not historically care about what black people like. For example, there's a show which I've never seen called Hip Hop Something, some some kind of horrendous 
black female defiling show basketball or I forgot what it's called because I've never seen it. But we were talking about we were talking about on the Rolling Show, but black people were upset about the show and went it off the air. And white folks said, uh, "No, we're not taking it off the air." Mm. Now I, I think that finally, because of some other reasons, it did come off the air. But my point is that they didn't care that they didn't care about what black people wanted and didn't want, and they still don't. This is not. If they care about what black people wanted and didn't want, Don Lemon would not be on TV. Mm-hmm. So we need to stop falling for it. And in order for us to stop falling for all of the anti-black messaging that becomes behavior, is to come out of the anti-black white supremacy trauma trance or the, or the mental health phenomena that I described that, that one that had to run me on the show. Until, until we come out of that, you know, you can talk all you want to. Mm-hmm. We're going to always relapse. If we don't come out of the, come out of it in the first place. Um, Cleo, we, we got like, uh, literally like maybe seven minutes left. We got another program coming on after us. Um, cultural, this CTCA. I mean, this sounds like something I would be interested in, in, in taking. I mean, is this available? How do, how do people take this course? Where is it? Is it widely available? How do we how do we take part in this? Well, in seven minutes or less, um, I'm, work, I'm, I'm working on a book right now. Okay, that will um, be based on CCCA and about CCCA. Um, so it will be an instructional book about how to implement CCCA. So that book um, should be finished by the end of the year. Um, the courses and stuff that are, that are occur that occur happen in mostly the nonprofit realm where nonprofits um, ask my staff to come and do trainings and do court classes. Mm-hmm. Also in Chicago, um, we're doing a um, research project with using CTCA with African so-called African Americans to reduce self-destructive and risky behavior among black people. So it's involved in, so some of the classes have slowed down so we could focus on this research project because if the research project, if the evaluation of CTCA proves through their, frankly, white evaluation processes, um, if it proves efficacious, then the model will be um, recognized by larger systems and be implemented throughout the country. So right now we're in a holding pattern in terms of further dissemination temporarily. Okay. While we deal, while we deal with my book as well as the final part of this research project. Wow, man. It sounds like you are engaged in some exciting things, man, that could help a whole lot of people. Wow. That's my goal. Yeah. That's my definite goal. Yeah. And, and certainly I will be watching out. You say the book will be uh, possibly finished by the end of this year? Yeah. All right. Because I, I certainly appreciate, man, in this little bit of time I had with you, how you have made me critically think and ask questions. You know, I, I try to think of myself as a pretty informed guy, but... I have never asked that question. Why is it that we the only ones who go around referring to ourselves in derogatory terms? And, and I know it's got to be external forces that's causing it's all, it. It's, it's, it's all external. And all I want to say in terms of you, this, this realization for you is that no matter how conscious we are, we all have trans residue. 
if because we live in a we, we speak. I mean, I don't know how many languages that you speak, but if you only speak in English, you're already entrapped to be anti-black on some level, because mm-hmm. the whole the language itself, which is German-based, is literally anti-black in the way we talk every day. Mm-hmm. Black eyes, and you know, we know what Spike Lee broke down that Dr. Beth said in terms of how the word black is used and the negative connotations. Mm-hmm. We talk like that. You know, we have little white lies and all that kind of crap. It all hypnotizes us into an anti-black trance. Mm-hmm. That's why you got all these sisters with blonde, fair flossing weaves and stuff uh, walking around looking like they're serious. They look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I didn't get I, I didn't get a chance, um, and we got literally like three minutes left. I didn't get a chance to ask you about the question of the merit of National Black AIDS Awareness Day, but I certainly would like to have you come back perhaps in three or four weeks and, and we could talk about, you know, AIDS and, and whatever else is out there culturally. Sure. And, but, and I got, but I got a quick question since time is so, so short, which is relevant to what you just said. On so-called National Black AIDS Day, did you come outside and see a whole bunch of people talk about it and celebrate it? Did you see a whole bunch of black people caring? No, I did not. I didn't even know it, February 7th it, was it, designated as National exactly. Black Exactly. That's part of my point. Yeah. That's part of my point. It's hype. We don't care. HIV is far from being a priority for black people, including people living with it, including people who are supposedly at risk. HIV is not what they're living for. Mm-hmm. So to have a national day is just a bunch of drama that helps somebody get some money, but it's not. It has no meaning and it's not relevant. Mm-hmm. And that's why I asked you that question. It's like a CPCA question. Instead of telling you, Black folks don't care. I asked you, did you see us caring? And you said no. No, I did not. I did not. All right. Well, certainly uh, we will be in touch so that we can bring you back. I always enjoy having you on, uh, Cleo, because you make me think. And um, you are engaged in some positive things for black people, for African-descendant people. And I certainly appreciate the work that you do in that realm. You have a blessed day, bro, and I will be in touch. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it, brother. All right. Take care. You too. All right. That was Mr. Cleo Monago of Black Men's Exchange. Again, this is a organization that promotes healing, education, empowerment, healthy self-concept, critical thinking, and cultural affirmation. Uh, You can find them on Facebook, Black Men's Exchange. That's the program. I will see you all Sunday night, Sunday night for Political Prisoner Radio, myself and Sister Amija Whitlock will have a program uh, lined up for you where we will talk about some of the cases of our political prisoners who are locked in these dungeons called pr- prison plantations. And uh, if there's any call to action on behalf of any prisoners, we will certainly let you know about those as well. Y'all stay tuned. Uh, Thando Radio Show will be on here in just a few minutes. Peace and blessings to all y'all. Be careful over the weekend. Recognize the fact that we live behind enemy lines in a war zone and there are people out there hunting you, okay, um, to enslave you, to mistreat you, and all kind of manner of evil. So y'all be careful out there.
Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.